We're getting down to it, y'all. We are no longer in the teens in this countdown to opening night of the college basketball season. Just a dozen to go. We are almost there. So close you can almost taste it. But, even with how close it is, it can still be so far away given the climate that we're living in right now. I'll talk about that and more here on this brand new episode of The Igloo with me, Timmy Ice. Now, to kick this off, as promised, it's time to unveil my top 10 players of the new Big East era. Now, honestly, like I said in my last episode, the top nine, I would say were pretty easy to narrow down, but getting the 10th one was hard. So, let's just get right into it. There were a lot of guys that I considered uh, for that 10th and final spot. But kicking off the top 10, at number 10, from Butler, Kamar Baldwin. Now, he didn't rack up the accolades in terms of being an all-Big East guy. And as a matter of fact, he was only an all-Big East honoree once. And that was his first team selection as a senior this past year. Before that, actually, uh, he was a two-time honoree. He was only on the first team once. He made the second team as a junior in 2019. And then, also notably, he was selected for the Big East All-Tournament team Back in 2018 when the Bulldogs went to the semifinals. But Kamar Baldwin, man. An incredibly underrated player. And the reason why I put him in the top 10 over guys like, let's just say, Keelan Martin. A teammate of his at Butler for his first two years there. A guy who scored more points than him. What sets a guy apart like that? Honestly, it comes down, honestly, to the clutch gene that he exhibited in his four years. Not to mention he made an impact all four years at Butler. As a freshman, within his first three games, made a difference by stepping up and hitting the game-winning shot against Northwestern at Hinkle Fieldhouse. Started two-thirds of their games, 23 starts out of 34 games. I remember the game they played at Seton Hall uh, when I was a junior in college when the Bulldogs came in into Newark, ranked 11th in the country, and in the second half, Kamar Baldwin hit a spot-up three off a pass on the left wing. And I knew it was going in the second he got the ball and was squaring up to shoot. Why? Because even I knew it when he was just a freshman, he was a big shot maker. And he was a big shot maker all four years. I mean, he was huge in the Big East Tournament in 2018 when Butler went to the semifinals. He hit a ton of huge shots this past year. The game-winning shot over Villanova at Hinkle. The last day of the regular season when he hit a three at the buzzer to beat Xavier in Cincinnati. Hitting a game-winning shot in Kansas City to beat Stanford. The dude had ice in his veins. All four years of college. And that is what Kamar Baldwin brought to the table that put him just ahead of a guy like Keelan Martin into the top 10. Finished with 1,956 points. And I think you and I 
everyone knows that he would have eclipsed 2,000 points had they played the Big East tournament. He would have finished with just a little over 2,000 points. And if I'm actually looking at this correctly, uh, I, I just I just want to pull this up just for old time's sake with, you know... Um, Uh, and I can't, I I am really sorry for like losing my train of thought. So in that hypothetical Big East tournament, um, 16 in the quarterfinals, in the semifinals against St. John's, another 16, and then in the championship game, He would have chipped in 20, which, considering, you know, 32 points in the first game, first two games, puts him at 1,988. And then in the Big East Championship, another 20, which would have gotten him all Big East Tournament, for sure. And put him over 2,000 points at 2,008. And then you chip in the first round game against Liberty... Only 13, which would have put him at 2,021 career points. So in his final four games, I mean, based on my math, and I know I'm just playing the hypothetical game. You know, he still averaged 16.3 points. Granted, that was below his season average. Actually, actually, it was right right at his season average of 16.2. I mean, just a little bit over that. But there's no doubt with the way that everything would have played out, I, don't, I just think there would have been no doubt that Kamar Baldwin would have eclipsed 2,000 career points. And I just think there's absolutely no doubt he, because of that, that is what gives him the nod to make the top 10. Coming in at number 9. From Seton Hall from 2014 to 18. Angel Delgado. I mean, it's very, very hard to not include the Biggie's all-time leading rebounder on this list. For his career, 132 games. The 12.1 points a game isn't sexy. But 11 rebounds a game, that is what gets Angel into the top 10. And, you know, he had, I mean, just think about his junior season in particular. His junior year is a major reason why he makes it in the top 10. Unanimous first team all Big East at 15.2 points. And 13.1 rebounds per game. Like, and I and I got to witness this firsthand for four years. Seeing him rebound at the level that he did. His worst rebounding season was when he averaged just 9.3 rebounds. And that was his sophomore campaign. In which he was an honorable mention averaging almost a double-double at 9.9 points to go with 9.3 rebounds. For a, And keep in mind, this is a big guy who was one assist away from having a triple-double in the Big East tournament in 2017 against Marquette. Started a, 130 of his 132 games. The last game he didn't start was back in January of 2015 against Xavier at the Cintas Center. So, if I do the math right, he started 117 games in a row. It's crazy to think about, really. But, I mean, 
the numbers in terms of his point total, it's not going to stick out. 1,593 points. But 1,455 rebounds is damn impressive. And of course, he became the Big East all-time leading rebounder during his senior year, uh, securing it in a game at DePaul. And he managed to secure this record still with 10 games remaining in the conference schedule. So he just got to coast the last 10 games and relax and not worry about the record and just focus on being himself and helping lead the Pirates as he as he would do that year to their first NCAA tournament win since 2004. A 14-year drought snapped. And on top of that, his final game in a loss to Kansas, a stat line that'll make your head explode. 24 points and 23 rebounds. I mean, if that isn't top 10 worthy, honestly, I don't know what is. Not to mention, also worth noting, 72 career double-doubles. 72. And and you want to look at even crazier, like in his conference stats... Only 12.5 per game in conference. However, he averaged 11.5 rebounds per game. Which I think is absolutely insane. So, that is my number 9. Coming in at number 8. Coming from Xavier, another guy from the class of 2018, Trayvon Blewett. This guy knew how to fill it up. And this was a guy who was all Big East three years in a row. Including, by the way, being on the all Big East first team three years in a row from 2016 to 18. And he finished his career... Number two on Xavier's all-time scoring list. And, you know, if it wasn't for Byron Larkin, Trayvon Blewett would have had that record locked up. So Trayvon, the pride of Indianapolis... He averaged nearly 16 points a game and 5 rebounds. There wasn't a season in which he averaged less than 10. He averaged 11 as a freshman. And he started all but 6 games out of 142, including all 36 during the 2017 Elite 8 campaign. Finished his career with 2,261 points. He averaged 15 points as a sophomore, 18.5 as a junior, and 19.3 as a senior. And this was a guy who made over 300 three-pointers in his college career. and A big shot maker for the Musketeers, especially as a senior. He had a huge four-point play against Georgetown in his senior campaign that got Xavier to force overtime and survive an upset bid, and then just a few days later at Hinkle, put up a bomb with about five seconds left in the shot clock that he drained nothing but net to silence the crowd at Hinkle Fieldhouse and put the game on ice to give Xavier a huge road win. Now it's just three days after that. And again, Trayvon was just such an instrumental part in the Musketeers being as good as they were during his four years. They won at least one game in the tournament every single year he was there. As a matter of fact, they they had a 7-4 and four tournament record, which is really solid. Including, you know, the trip to the Elite Eight in 2017, and in 2015 they made it to the Sweet 16. So Trayvon Blewett, you know, some people will say that he should have been 
higher on this list. But, you know, I, I think number eight is a solid number for him. And it, and I think the reason why is because, you know, simply just look at the other talented players that he was going up against in the Big East at that time. You know, it's tough to compete against. Number seven, Ryan Archidiacono from Villanova. Everyone's favorite... Honestly, he he I bet he's a nice nice kid. But during his time at Villanova, he was the scorn of every Big East fan outside of Nova. He won Co-Big East Player of the Year in 2015 as a junior. And it was really weird because he wasn't unanimous first team all Big East that year. But yet he won co-Big East player of the year with Chris Dunn. But if you look at his play in March, it's tough to discount it. Especially during his senior year leading Villanova to the national championship. You know, he started all but two games for the Wildcats in his career. 142 starts, 144 games including all 34 when he was a freshman in 2012-13, the year before realignment. And he stepped in during a year Villanova was kind of being counted out. They had a really bad year the year before. And they had a big year where, you know, they proved a lot of people wrong. They were picked low in the preseason poll, but they came in and got some pretty big wins. You know, between, well, mainly in Big East play, I should say. But their non-conference losses, I mean, they lost to Alabama, whatever. They had an ugly loss to Columbia where they were still trying to figure things out. And then they lost to LaSalle, who was a Sweet 16 team that year as a 13 seed. Temple was a solid team they lost to in a Big 5 game at the Wells Fargo Center. And then in Big East play, that was when they started to figure things out. And they scored some really big upsets. The first of which, actually they pulled it back to back in January, where they beat number five Louisville and then number three Syracuse at Wells Fargo Center. And both of those teams made the final four that year. Much to everyone's surprise. And they also, at Wells Fargo in February, upset, and you know, well, I should say they also pulled off two more big upsets that year against Marquette and Georgetown, two of the other three teams that finished in a three-way tie atop the Big East. Villanova beat both of them in their last two home games of the year. They had some ugly losses, but those big wins, you know, Ryan Archidiacono played a big role in those wins. And he played a big role in Villanova having a big year in 2013-14 when they won the Big East regular season title. And then, of course, how can we forget his senior year when he was most outstanding player at the Final Four and, of course, handing off to Chris Jenkins for the game-winning shot for the national championship in Houston. And, you know... Let's let's kind of you know look at when he uh, like just his run in March. Um. So let yeah yeah let's just look at it right away. Um. So he had, I mean, he scored in double figures in each game. 
And this was after he had only scored five points on two of ten shooting against Seton Hall in the Big East title game. Including missing the very last shot of the game that sent Pyro fans into hysteria. You know, he scored 14 against UNC Asheville, 16 against Iowa, 21 against Miami, 13 against Kansas, 15 against Oklahoma, 16 against North Carolina. You know, he was consistent all tournament long, and that was what gave Villanova that edge and helped propel them to the national championship, and you need that from the point guard position, and that is exactly what Arch brought to the table. Matter of fact, he averaged almost 16 points a game in the Big East tournament, in the NCAA tournament, I should say. And, of course, with the championship accolades that he had being a three-time Big East regular season champion, one-time Big East tournament champion, and, of course, an NCAA national champion and being most outstanding player of the Final Four in 2016, you know, that kind of stuff all just cannot be ignored. Coming in at number six, another Seton Hall guy, Miles Powell. This was a guy who came ready to play from this moment he stepped on campus. Now, but the funny thing is, he wasn't necessarily in shape, ready to go when he arrived. And people have, you know, every time someone from Fox Sports brought up brought up the story about Miles Powell arriving to Seton Hall overweight, you know, like take a shot. <laughs> but the story in itself is still remarkable. He showed up to Seton Hall weighing 240 pounds. And he shed 45 pounds that offseason to get him down to 195, a weight he stayed at for all four years. I mean, 6'2", 240 would have been, ick. But 6'2", 195, and he stayed in shape. And I feel like he got in better shape, improving his physical condition year after year. Now, he made an immediate impact. A lot of people weren't expecting him to, but he did. Literally, in Game 3, he dropped 26 at Iowa. He had 26 at Xavier. We got to see a lot of what we saw this past year, three years ago, when he was a freshman. He was showing off that incredible range, then. And, literally, I was watching some of these games, you know, people are like, they were like in awe of, his range and the shots he would make, you know, as they should be. But for me, someone who has, you know, seen his ride, basically from the moment he's arrived, you know, it didn't really surprise me. You know, like, you know, like he's been doing this kind of shit since freshman year. And, you know, you look at the numbers, his three-point percentage, I mean, his senior year, let's just ignore that he was only 30%. But 33% as a freshman, about 38% as a sophomore, 36% as a junior. And you saw his game elevate year after year. You know, he was the sixth man as a freshman and came up big in a lot of games, especially in the postseason. He looked great in the Big East tournament. He had double figures against Arkansas in the NCAA tournament. And then in his sophomore year, you kind of got the sense like, okay, he's going to be the guy once the core four moves on. And he proved to be that and then some. Especially during his junior campaign where Seton Hall was really being questioned on, you know, whether or not they were for real. Or whether or not they could survive life without the core four. Well, they did. Not only did they prove to be a good team, they were an NCAA tournament team. Primarily because of Miles Powell. You you look at the jump in his numbers from sophomore to junior year. He averaged 15.5 points as a sophomore. 
2.6 rebounds, 2.8 assists, and a steal. The following year, 23.1 points, 4 rebounds, 2.9 assists, and he doubled his steals per game. And he did it while playing only about 4.3 minutes more. And he was also taking a few more shots, but his field goal percentage went up at 44.7% from the field. And he also improved his free throw percentage. He was at 84%, which was one of the best on the team. 129 games, 97 starts, eclipsed 2,000 points as a senior this year, back in January. But you can only think, like, could he have been Seton Hall's all-time leading scorer when all is said and done? And considering, you know, how much of the game he missed against Stony Brook back in November, him missing two games at the end of non-con against Maryland and Prairie View with a concussion, and basically three quarters of the game against Rutgers because of that concussion. You know, that's a lot of points being taken off the table. But the way that he scored and kept Seton Hall at a high level after people kind of counted them out after that class of 2018 graduated. You know, they were 8th in the preseason poll his junior year in 2018-19. But he proved everybody wrong. He got that all Big East first team nod after he had been most improved in 2018. You know, he stepped up on so many occasions. You know, hitting big shot after big shot when they upset Kentucky. Of course, the Curry Range Type 3 against Villanova at home. The big shots he hit against Marquette just a few days before that. And of course, helping lead the Pirates to the Big East Championship game in the Big East Tournament. Also setting the record for most points and a half in Big East Tournament history that year against Georgetown, where he scored 29 in the first half, which is actually more than Georgetown scored as a team. And let's not forget that. I was still dumbfounded. Like, you know, a lot of the stuff that Miles does doesn't surprise me, but him outscoring Georgetown an entire half legitimately left my jaw on the floor, honestly. And of course, he was Biggie's preseason player of the year this year, ended up being Biggie's player of the year, and was a first team All American this year. Averaged 21 points a game, 4.3 rebounds, 2.9 assists. And for his career, averaging 17.5 points a game, it's a pretty damn good career, if you ask me. And, you know, the pride of Trent, New Jersey, you know, as Gus Johnson says, what Trenton makes, the world takes. And what Trenton produced, the number six player in the new Big East era. So, we're into the top five now. Coming in at number five, going back to another Gus Johnson Quote, the Lionheart, Josh Hart. This was a guy who arrived at the beginning of the new Big East era out of Silver Spring, Maryland. Now, he didn't start until his junior campaign. In his first two years, in 70 games, he only made three starts. But... He made an immediate impact. Not so much his freshman year, averaging 7.8 points, but he did average 10 off the bench as a sophomore. And incredibly, that year, 2015, he was the Big East Tournament most outstanding player, leading the Wildcats to the Big East Tournament title at the time, their first since 1995. 20-year drought that was snapped. And they did it in dominant fashion, with the exception being when they beat Providence in the semifinals. The other two games, they beat Marquette by 35, and then the championship game against Xavier, they won by 17. And 
that was largely in part due to the play of Josh Hart. And when he was moved into the starting lineup as an upperclassman his junior and senior year, they only got better. And of course, he played a big role in Villanova winning the national championship, his first team All-Big East as a junior, averaging 15.5 points. And then he won Big East Tournament Most Outstanding Player again as a senior in 2017. He was Big East Preseason Player of the Year and then ended up winning Player of the Year when all was said and done. So first team, all Big East first team. Three times on the all Big East tournament team. He was also you know, Big East Defensive Player of the Year. In 2017, he was also Big East Sixth Man of the Year as a sophomore in 2015. Averaged 13 points and about five and a half rebounds per game in his college career. And, you know, his stat line as a senior, you know, 18.7 points, 6.4 rebounds, nearly three assists a game, and about a steal and a half per game. Josh Hart was a baller, man. And... It's great to see him do great things, you know, in the NBA. You know, he's doing great with the Pelicans. And he's also doing great in the wine game. So, you know, kudos to him. I know he's doing great things um, on and off the court. And it's hard it's hard to dislike a guy like Josh Hart. I know it's easy for Big East fans to say that outside of Villanova because he's on Villanova. But, I mean, I've grown to like him a lot because I've realized, I mean, the dude has just a really good sense of humor. He's funny. Like, you just can't not like, you just can't not like the guy. If that makes any sense, you know? Number four. Now, I know he was only in the Big East for one year. But that one year was a huge year. And that, of course, is Dougie McBuckets, Doug McDermott. You know, he won the Wooden Award, the Naismith Award. He was a three-time All-American in college. He was also National Player of the Year for the AP in, in his lone year in the Big East. He was also Big East Player of the Year, first-team All-Big East, as expected. And then, of course, he was on the All-Big East tournament team, as the Blue Jays went all the way to the championship game of that year's tournament before losing in the finals. You know, he averaged nearly 22 points in his Creighton career, averaged 7.5 rebounds. But just looking at his senior campaign, 35 games, averaged 26.7 points, 7 rebounds, 1.6 assists. And his turnover numbers were really low compared to, you know, his first three years you know that was his first time going under two turnovers a game and you know he didn't go a single season in college shooting under 50 percent and I mean this is a guy who in his college career shot nearly 46 percent from three I mean as Jeffrey Grozel said on my show he was a pro-level scorer in college. And, you know, that's just a testament to how good Doug McDermott was. And, you know, his to- his total points, 3,150. And he scored nearly 1,000 as a senior in that just one year. 934 points. He was 66 away from dropping 1,000 in one season. And, you know, his 3,150 points. You know, looking at the all-time list, he he's up there. Matter of fact, he's in the top 10 all-time. And he's only, if I'm counting this right, only one, two, three, four, five, six. Doug McDermott ranks sixth all time in the history of college basketball and scoring. Seven, eight, nine. Only ten players in the history of college basketball have eclipsed three thousand points. 
and Doug McDermott is one of them. The only players to have scored more in their college career, Alfonso Ford out of Mississippi Valley State, Lionel Simmons from LaSalle, Chris Clemens, who actually graduated pretty recently out of Campbell. He was from the class of 2019. And then Freeman Williams out of Portland State from the 70s. And then, of course, the late, great Pistol Pete Maravich. And he did that in just three years. <laughs> and you'll be dumbfounded. 3,667 points, and which is an average of 44.2 points a game. Could you imagine someone doing that today? And not to mention, the three didn't exist Back in the day when Pistol Pete was playing. Same with Freeman Williams. But it's even more impressive for Pistol Pete. It's just... Because he did it in three years. It's just unheard of. And honestly... I think... This is probably going to be the last time you're going to see... Well, with Chris Clemens, like... The last time you're going to see someone eclipse 3,000 points in a college career. Because the closest, he's coming up later on this list. Don't you worry about that. Coming in at number three, a, a guy who literally epitomized being an all-around player. Now... Ironically, a, a teammate of Ryan Archidiakono on the Chicago Bulls, Chris Dunn of Providence College. A guy who was named Biggie's Player of the Year twice. He was co-player of the year with Archidiakono, strangely enough, in 2015. Twice named Biggie's Defensive Player of the Year. A guy who in 95 games only, 12.8 points. 5.1 rebounds, 5.8 assists. And he only played four games in 2013-14 before he was sidelined with an injury for the remainder of the season. But let's just look at what he did in his redshirt sophomore and junior campaigns. He started all but one of the 66 games he played in. And... He averaged 15.6 points, 5.5 rebounds, and and 7.5 assists as a sophomore. And then his junior year, where he was the outright Biggies player of the year, 16.4 points, 5.3 rebounds, 6.2 assists. And the Steels numbers were incredible. 2.7 as a sophomore, 2.5 as a junior. And keep in mind... You know, in, in in conference, he averaged in 2014-15 17 points, 5.9 rebounds, 7 assists, 2.8 steals. 2016, 16.2 points, 5.4 rebounds, 5.9 assists, 2.4 steals. This was a guy who got it done on both ends of the floor. And help make Providence as good as they were. Like being a top 25 team. And they they were ranked as high as 8th in the country. During his final year. For a guy you know that was in the top 20 high school basketball players in the entire country in 2012. Took us down to a place where that didn't really attract guys like him. And he made the most of it. And you really don't see a, a guy who really does all of that like Chris Dunn anymore. And that's why Chris Dunn ranks so high on my list. And it, which will make it even crazier for this guy who gets my number two spot. Like you might question like, oh, why is he number two? But I feel like I'm justified in saying this. Number two between his individual and team accolades, it's just hard to ignore. Coming in at number two, Jalen Brunson from Villanova. High school All-American, top 20 recruit in 2015 coming out of high school. A guy who, as a guard, shot 51% in his three-year college career. 
39% from three, 82% from the charity stripe, 14.4 points, two and a half rebounds, 3.7 assists. And he started all but one game in his Villanova career out of 116 games. This was a guy who also a two-time national champion, national player of the year in his final year of college in 2018. You know, won the Wooden, won the Wooden Award, won the Naismith Award, AP Player of the Year. He was all Big East freshman in 2016. Won all Big East, won Big East Player of the Year, of course, in 2018. Two-time All Big East tournament team. It's just hard to ignore the accolades. And of course, he was the most outstanding player of the East Regional in 2018 when Villanova won it out in Boston. You know, he really was as cool as the other side of the pillow. I mean, he was just so cool under pressure. Had the perfect motion on his jump shot the smooth stroke southpaw style it was just poetry in motion watching him do that even at my team's expense Seton Hall I mean the guy was just simply put an artist and he was the conductor of the nation's best offense in his final year of college that team wouldn't have succeeded as much as they did that year if Jalen Brunson hadn't had the year that he had. And keep in mind, never shot less than 50% from two-point range in his college career. His worst year shooting was when he shot 45% as a freshman. Shot 54% as a sophomore, 52% as a junior. And you look, you know, his National Player of the Year stats, I mean, incredible. 18.9 points per game, 2.8 rebound, uh, 3.1 rebounds, and about 4.5 assists per game and nearly a steal per game as well. And of course, it's hard to ignore those, na- um, those national championships because Jalen Brunson was a starter on both of those teams. And even though he didn't play as much of a role on the 2016 squad. We all know how important he was to the 2018 squad. And look at what they did. They steamrolled competition. And in Big East play, they were never dominated. Every single loss in that conference season was by less than 10. You know, it was an 8-point loss to Butler, a 4-point loss to St. John's, a five-point loss to Providence, and a six-point loss to Creighton. So, there was never a time where Villanova, with Jalen Brunson there, there was never a time where they were getting killed in a game. I guess you could say the Butler game they were getting killed in during his junior year, but they still lost by single digits. So, you know, make of it what you will. But... My number one, you know, it was hard to narrow down who should be number one. But to me, I, when I, the more I thought about it, the less doubt I had. And of course, that goes to arguably the greatest player in Marquette history, Marcus Howard. Well, if we're just talking about at Marquette. You know, he's right up there with the likes of Dwayne Wade. And that's saying something. For a guy only 5'11", he was only 17 when he arrived at Marquette. He was 17 for most of his freshman campaign. He was an all-Big East freshman in 2017. And he was selected three times to the all-Big East team. Second team as a sophomore. He was first team as a junior and a senior. And was Biggie's player of the year in 2019. And of course led the entire country in scoring this past year. 
as a senior, averaging 27.8 points, 3.5 rebounds, 3.3 assists. For, and his first career in 128 games, 21.6 points, 3.2 rebounds, 3.1 assists. And an incredible 44% from the field. 88.2% from the charity stripe, including 84.7% this year, which is actually his worst season, considering you know he shot no lower than right around 89% the other three years. You know, 88.9 in 17, 89.0 in 19, and then 93.8 in 2018. 128 games, 121 starts. And this is a guy, as a freshman, near, shot nearly 55% from deep. Never shot less than 40% from deep. He was always between 40 and 41% his final three years. And I know he was a high-volume shooter that made some bad decisions from time to time. But the way that he scored the rock, you kind of got to let him do it, you know? And that's what I realized, you know, like after he was, you know, after the season ended and, you know, realizing like, okay, we're never going to see another guy like him in a long, long time. A guy who stays all four years at this high of a level and scores the way that he does or the way that he did at 2,761 points, which you know, looking at that list, you know, we talked about Doug McDermott at number six. Marcus Howard, you know, he, he's right up there. He was in he he's in the top twenty. So, you know, before everything was wiped out because of COVID. He was only eight points, nine points away, excuse me, from passing J.J. Redick. And 41 points, and given a bare minimum of two games, from passing Allen Houston, legendary New York Nick. You know, you know, looking at that list, you know, for him to be in the top 20 all time in the history of college basketball in scoring. So Hersey Hawkins, by the way, at number 10, you know, I'm looking at some of these names is kind of insane. And then, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Well, just outside the top 20. I, I may have miscalculated there. I, I had to do the math in my head. I'm sorry about that. But he was going to be in the top 20 if everything had played out the way it should have. And, you know, right at the end of the season, he had just passed Hank Gathers, the late, great Hank Gathers, uh, you know, from Loyola Marymount. But, honestly, if you you got to take a step back and think, like, we're never going to see a guy like him at this high of a level in college basketball ever again? Maybe. It might take a generation for another guy like him to come along. Well, then again, you know, we saw Doug McDermott, who was from the class of 2014, just six years prior, do some incredible things. But we rarely see guys who can be that much of a prominent scorer amongst the Power 6 conferences, if we want to include the Big East, along with the Power 5 conferences, staying all four years and being as good as he was for all four years. Not to mention, I haven't even touched on the fact that he set the Big East single-game scoring record in 2018 as a sophomore. And then he broke his own record a year later. He had 52 at Providence his sophomore year. And then the following year, he scored 53 at Creighton. Breaking his own record. That's nuts. 
And then, of course, this past year, back in February, he became the Big East all-time leading scorer, passing Syracuse legend Lawrence Moten. And I think that might be a record that will never be broken in the Big East. Who knows with Angel Delgado's, but I feel like if I were to bet whose is more unlikely to break, I put my money on Marcus Howard's all-time scoring record in the Big East, having, you know, less odds, less of a chance of being broken. And for me, that is why Marcus Howard, I mean, simply, I could have said it with just that accolade alone, but I had to give you more supporting evidence, you know? So that is what gives Marcus Howard the number one spot on my list of the top 10 players of the new Big East era. So, I hope you're not too exhausted because coming up next to wrap up the show, I got got some thoughts on COVID and how it can affect the start of the season because it's affected quite a few programs. It affected Marquette a couple weeks back, but now it has affected two more Big East programs. I'll have my thoughts on that for my first icebreaker in a while coming up right after this, so stay tuned. Welcome back. If you have returned after that lengthy segment, thank you. And I guess I should also congratulate you for making it this far because now it is time for the icebreaker. And of course, we have to address the elephant in the room, which is, of course, COVID. Nationwide, we're seeing spikes all over the place. Every state is seeing a meteoric rise in cases. You know, we're approaching nearly a quarter million deaths due to COVID in this country. And it's getting scary, especially with the holidays coming up. States have been limiting restrictions. Well, they're implementing restrictions, I should say, on literally just in New York State, for example. Governor Cuomo is limiting in-home gatherings to 10 people, no more than 10, excluding the people who live at a res- at the residence that is hosting people. And there's going to be a lot of tra- traveling that's going to be going on the week of Thanksgiving, which is in just two short weeks. And when we talk about traveling for Thanksgiving... Got to talk about a sport that involves a lot of travel. And there's going to be a lot of traveling that's going to be done Thanksgiving week in the world of college basketball. But what I'm going to talk about more with COVID is, of course, what has been in the news over the past couple of days, mainly early this week, regarding two biggie schools announcing positive tests And, of course, the quarantining process and a complete shutdown of all team activities for two weeks. And those two programs, UConn and Seton Hall, this is news with, you know, with the season so close. This is news, especially if you're either of those programs. News you don't want to hear and news you've been trying to avoid and something that you have literally been just trying to avoid this entire time, you know, trying to abide by all the protocols and everything. But yet here we are, both teams with positive COVID tests shutting down for two weeks with the season right on the horizon And according to Zach Braziller from the New York Post, who has a beat on Seton Hall, the positive COVID test for Seton Hall came early in the week. So that means that instead of getting really worried about can Seton Hall even play their opening game on November 25th in Louisville against Winthrop, everyone can kind of take a deep breath and essentially let out a sigh of relief knowing that it happened Monday or Tuesday. And the status of that game seems a little more likely compared to if it came up literally Wednesday or even Thursday. 
Because if that would have happened, they would have been toast. And same goes with UConn. Um, currently, their first schedule game won't be until the week after Thanksgiving. But still, it's a difficult process to have to shut down team activities for two weeks. No practice, no nothing. You got to shut down for two weeks, make sure everyone's quarantined, and making sure that there's going to be no spread of COVID. And to essentially prevent an outbreak. Because we've all seen outbreaks happen in college athletics, other, you know, big time money sport, football. We've seen a ton of games between the SEC, the Big Ten, and the Big 12. And even like in lower lower tier conferences like Conference USA that have gone down due to COVID and teams having outbreaks with players, coaches, and other personnel testing positive. Like, we all have to be extremely cautious, extremely careful with how we go about our daily lives. I understand the rationale with people saying we shouldn't be living in fear of this thing. But with the numbers that we have seen and with the trend that we have seen across college football that can very well trickle down into college basketball when everything gets started up in just a couple weeks. You got to get weary. You got to get a little bit worried. And essentially, that sense of urgency has to kick in to say, okay, we see a problem here, and we are not going to let this keep going on. It is going to be up to us to make sure that we are doing everything in our power to abide by protocols, make sure that everybody's safe. Traveling safely, the whole nine yards. And even then, there might be some COVID infections. And I think that is what the scariest part of all of this is. Because chances are, we're going to see a lot of cancellations. I mean, one league already said no to all winter sports. And that was the Ivy League. And for those of you that remember... Back in March when all of this was just starting up, the Ivy League was the first conference to cancel their conference tournament. And look at the snowball effect it took. Because once the pandemic started becoming more serious and gripping more of the nation, the rest, the, the longer the snowball continued to roll down the mountain. Because then it trickled down with every other conference that still had yet to play With the very last domino to fall, strangely enough, being the Big East. And it's funny how things kind of work out like that. And with that, you know, with the Ivy League canceling their basketball season and all winter sports, you can't help but feel this sense of deja vu. Like, with the Ivy League canceling, is the rest of college basketball going to be canceled too now if if things start to get worse? Are we going to see a repeat of what happened back in March? God, I hope not. But that has to linger in the back of your mind just a little bit, you know? Because the great quote says, those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And we have to learn from what happened back in March. It's really that simple. And that's how I'm going to end that. Because if I go any further, I feel like I'm going to go off on a, on a tangent. I think that's just a good place to leave it off. So that does it for this episode of the Igloo. Thanks again for tuning in. Coming up on the next episode, I got an interview with former Seton Hall guard and associate head coach, and now the head coach of the St. Peter's men's basketball team down in Jersey City, 
Shaheen Holloway is going to join me on the next episode of the Igloo coming out on Tuesday. So be on the lookout for that. So I'll see you next. Until then, I'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Enjoy the weekend. And with all the college football that'll hopefully be on this weekend. I know I'll be watching Minority Fighting Irish. They just picked up a huge upset over Clemson last week. And they get Boston College on the road this Saturday. uh, And a bit of a holy war. So I'll I'll be super juiced up for that one. So again, be on the lookout for the next episode on Tuesday with an interview with Shaheen Holloway. And I promise you, it'll be a good one uh, because we're going to cover a lot. You know, his playing career being on the 2000 Sweet 16 squad, uh, which is still the last Sweet 16 team from the Hall to date. That would I still think that would have changed in 2020, but obviously we'll never know. So until then, this is Timmy Ice signing off from the Igloo. Thanks for tuning in, and I will catch you next time.